Hey, what's good, Rocky Peak? How are we doing this weekend? Well, it is good to be with you once again. As Rachel said, whether you're joining us inside the worship center, joining us out on the patio, and especially if you're joining us for the very first time, special welcome to you. We are excited that you're here to worship and learn alongside with us. If you and I have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we're going to go into that time of teaching. So if you haven't done so yet, if you open up your program, inside there is a green and white message note sheet, which acts as a great tool to help you follow along this time of teaching. I also like to provide some blank space in there for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you specifically to remember. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive right in. Jesus, there's many times in which I greet Rocky Peak with a lighthearted and an affectionate, what good? What's good? But the beautiful truth about that question is that the answer is you. You are always good, Jesus, even when my circumstances are not, even when our world is not, even when I am not in my thoughts, in my heart, or in my actions, you are always good. And like a song we often find ourselves singing here at Rocky Peak, your goodness is running after me, is running after us. Your goodness fills our hearts. It transforms us from the inside out. And then we get to then go out into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our worlds, and reflect and point to the goodness found only in King Jesus. And so as we gather together this weekend, wherever it is we're gathering from, we do so beautifully expecting to experience more of your goodness. As we open up your word, which is living and active, as I often pray as the communicator, I pray that I would become much, much less, that I would fall by the wayside, and that you, King Jesus, would become much, much more. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we all said, amen. Well, Rocky Peak, this weekend, we're going to be continuing the series we've been for quite a while now called Signs of the Path to Life. And if you're joining us for the very first time, this series has been an in-depth study in the life and teachings of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, a man called the Apostle John. And so John is writing his gospel near the end of his life. He's writing as an old man, and he's looking back on his experiences with Jesus, and he's inviting each of us today to go along on a journey with him. And through that journey in particular, he's going to highlight these seven supernatural signs. And all of his writing is designed to help us better understand who Jesus really is, why Jesus came into our world and into our lives, and what is the path that leads to life. And so this weekend, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going into John chapter 9. Now, Rocky Peak, we're not going to be covering a portion of John chapter 9. We're going to be covering the entirety of John chapter 9 together. We're going to do some work. But you got this, Rocky Peak, you got this, and we're going to do this together. But as we go into chapter 9, we have to see it as a whole because it's one big account. As Jesus heals a blind man, but it leads to this deeper question of what does it mean to be spiritually blind and how does Jesus and Jesus alone open our eyes and open our hearts to be able to see past the darkness in our lives. And John chapter nine brings to light in a very clear way the meaning of the statement Jesus made in chapter eight, there in your note sheet, that I am the light of the world, that whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light 
of life. And so again, this is going to be the foundation as we dive in. And so this is going to be a long passage. And so we're going to go ahead and dissect the passage and do the takeaways together to be able to help us follow along. There in your note sheet, I've broken it down as the movie guy. I've decided to break it down into an epic trilogy, as I'm common to say. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Just That, an Epic Trilogy. And we're going to begin with episode one, which I've titled Healing an initial reaction. So I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to turn them on. We're going to be going to John chapter 9, starting right at verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Would you underline or highlight that? Blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now let's stop right there and let's try to paint the picture of this situation. And so by indicating that this man was not only blind, but had been blind his entire life, what John is telling us clearly is that this man's life had been a tragedy up to this point. And so again, hear me very, very clearly, it is still an incredible hardship in this day and age to be dealing with blindness, but we are dealing in a culture, in an ancient culture, in a world that did not have any modern helps or any modern programs or modern supports to help you with this ailment. If you were blind, in essence, your life was hopeless. There was no hope of really finding community. There was no hope of growing out of a lower social class all you could do was stand and beg and depend on the kindness of others. And so as Jesus' disciples see this tragedy, they ask a very honest question. Whose fault is this? Is this his fault or is this his parents' fault? And what's interesting is as we go further, Jesus is going to address this question by pointing out that the question they're asking has some technical truth to it, but it's a little too narrow. And in fact, this is going to tie together what Jesus has been teaching us all throughout the Gospel of John about what the reality of sin is. It sounds easy to just be like, well, clearly he's experiencing this tragedy because he messed up or someone related to him messed up. But what we've seen so far in John's Gospel is that the answer to who sinned is us. We sinned. We brought sin into our lives and into our world, and that wrecked everything. This ailment of being blind, any other ailment and hardship and suffering and sadness that we experience is not God's original design. It's not God's intent, but it's the reality of what sin has done in our world. And so as we continue in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. That's God the Father. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Would you underline or highlight that? While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
And so again, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's calling us to step back and to see a bigger truth behind his actions and what he's about to do. Throughout the Gospels, one of the healings that we see Jesus do multiple times is that he heals the blind. And one of the key reasons why we see this happen multiple times is that physical blindness is a very clear metaphor for what it means to be spiritually blind. What it means to be spiritually blind is that our hearts cannot see Jesus. And if our hearts can't see Jesus, then our hearts cannot see life. And if we can't see life, then we can't experience the life that God intends for us. And so again, Jesus is making this powerful declaration that he has come to be the light which illuminates the truth, not just of sin and darkness, but illuminates the truth of who Jesus is and the life that he brings. And so as he continues in verse six, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Okay, let's pause right there. <laughs> if you were witnessing that, how would you react or respond? Because let's be honest, that is incredibly odd, isn't it? Would you be confused? Would some of you be a little grossed out by what's going on? And so this is a very unique situation. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. In fact, at first glance, and rightfully so, this can seem very confusing. Why would Jesus choose to do it this way? And so to understand why Jesus is choosing to do it in this way, we again need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what we know about Jesus and that how that illuminates the truth behind his actions. We know so far in this gospel that Jesus is absolutely intentional, that nothing in Jesus happens by accident. We also know that Jesus has all of the authority of God the Father in him. We know that Jesus could have simply spoken healing into this man, that he could have done it from a distance as we've seen him do in other healings in this life. So what Jesus is choosing to do is absolutely intentional. And so we also know that Jesus often acts with key symbols that point to a bigger truth that help us understand and picture what God is trying to say. And so the first key symbolism we see is the spit. And we've seen Jesus do this twice before by using spit in Mark's gospel, but never in this way. And the spit shows us a picture of a very personal, if not very intimate form of, enca of encounter, of engaging with this man. The second thing that we see is the dirt. And many times in scripture, dirt symbolizes creation. And so what do we see Jesus doing is that he's showing his authority by spitting into this dirt, by making it mud, by using that as his catalyst for healing, we see Jesus' authority on display. The third thing we see through this is that spit in Leviticus was, we're told, is a way to transfer, is a way to transfer the condition of being unclean. 
And this makes me think of the leper in Matthew chapter 8, that to touch a leper was to become unclean, and yet Jesus chose to heal him by touching him. And what does that teach us about Jesus is that which makes you and I unclean has no authority on him that he has authority over that which makes us unclean, that he has authority over sin and darkness. What do we see through this very personal as well as unexpected way of healing is that Jesus physically entered into his ailment. He entered into his darkness and he brought truth and he brought light and he brought in authority that no one else can. And as we continue... Verse seven, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent, this editorial comment of what the Hebrew word means. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Again, the intentional symbolism that John's gospel has been declaring that Jesus is the one who is sent by God and how appropriate that Jesus then sends this man to a pool which, mean, which is named after the word sent. And so now he can see. And so verse eight, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he insisted, he he himself insisted, I am the man. Which is kind of funny to read. Again, how would you respond if you were the community Do you think you would very easily accept what happened? Or do you think you would be confused? There is a very understandable, and I would even say very healthy skepticism going, wait, 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 wait. What happened? Who are you? I don't don't know if I understand or believe this. And so look then at verse 10. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus, which you underline or highlight how he refers to Jesus. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told, them to go, he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So again, all around, this is becoming a more confusing story, right? So here is this formerly blind man and they go, what happened? And he explains, spit, mud, pool, can see. That doesn't exactly clarify the situation, right? But not only that, if you are this formerly blind man, this has got to be confusing for you too, right? Because the way he refers to Jesus shows a man named Jesus. Maybe he's a teacher. I think I heard somebody called him rabbi. He did this thing with the mud and now I can see. But it goes deeper than that. What has got to be amazingly confusing, in fact, I would say beautifully confusing to this man, is this is completely outside of his paradigm, right? His condition, blind from birth, had no solution. There was no healing this condition And yet here came Jesus and did something completely outside of his paradigm. And so before we leave episode one there in your note sheet, there's a key truth that comes from it. Your first villain is this, that Jesus restores what sin destroyed. 
Jesus restores what sin destroyed. And let me challenge us before we dive into this truth that especially if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, there can be a temptation and almost a tendency at times to hear this truth that Jesus restores sin, Jesus forgives sin and to almost become numb to it or to very much see it in a general sense. And so Rocky Peak, I wanna implore you as I'm imploring myself that let's take this personally. Let's attach this to our very own hearts. In other words, Jesus restores what sin destroyed in your heart. What sin destroys in my heart what sin continues to desire to destroy in our hearts. And really, that's the whole purpose of sin. That's the purpose of the enemy. That's the purpose of spiritual warfare is destruction. What sin aims to do is to destroy life, is to separate us from life by separating us from the source of life, which is Jesus himself. And so the way that the enemy accomplishes this is through spiritual blindness in which we no longer see Jesus as the source of life. And the brilliance of that strategy is that when we no longer see Jesus as the source of life, it doesn't stop our hearts from seeking life. And so when we can't see Jesus, then our hearts begin to seek life in what we can see, to seek life in the created rather than the creator. And so we then become people that are seeking life in our relationships, whether our family, our friendships, our romantic, or our desire for a type of relationship. We begin seeking life in our status or our definition in what people think about me. Do people think I've got it all together? Do people think I've earned it? We begin to seek life in our accomplishments or our achievements. We begin to seek life in our resources and what we have. We begin to seek life in our comfortability or in our freedoms. We begin to seek life in our substances or our resources. And we could go on and on. We begin to seek life in our traditions and our own plans and what makes sense to us. And hear me very, very clearly. Out of all those examples I gave, those examples contain some of the most beautiful things we can experience in life. Some of those examples contain some of the greatest, if not the best gifts that the Lord gives us on this side of heaven. But nothing in those examples could ever be capable of giving us life. Only Jesus can give life. And so Jesus has entered into our darkness like he does with this man to restore the sight of our hearts so that we can now see him and we can now experience life. There in your note sheet, I love how it's put from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. We can see and hear Jesus. If you're here this weekend and you're a Christ follower, I wanna ask you just to reflect on when you first gave your life to Jesus. Reflect on the circumstances, reflect on the people, reflect on that journey but ultimately reflect on the truth that you gave your life to Jesus 
because your eyes were opened by him and you could now see. You could now see who he is. And Christ followers, one of the myths of following Jesus is that we need our eyes open once and that's it. The reality is on this side of heaven, the enemy is still active. Darkness and warfare are still active and we can lose our way. Again, we can find ourselves lost in the dark and so we need Jesus to continue to illuminate and to continue to restore what sin destroyed and what we see coming out of episode one is that Jesus enters into our darkness to illuminate truth in deeply, deeply personal ways. But he also does that in deeply, deeply, deeply unexpected ways. And often that can pose a challenge and that's gonna lead us into episode two. And so there in your note sheet as we transition, episode two, the investigation and the controversy. So again, for the sake of time, I'm gonna paraphrase what happens next. And so the community is really confused and they're looking for wise counsel. And so what they choose to do is they involve the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They invite the religious leaders to come and weigh in on the situation. And I realize, especially if you've been with us on this journey through John's gospel, that by saying they involve the Pharisees, that for some of us kind of puts a pit in our stomach as we go, oh, those guys. But contextually, it makes perfect sense. Because what happened is clearly something supernatural. And so it makes sense that they would want the religious leadership at the time to weigh in, to give them some direction or clarity as to what is going on. The intent is good, but the problem is that it's the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees are coming in, not with a heart that is genuinely seeking truth, but they're coming in with an angry agenda for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, they're coming in with an angry agenda that they want to investigate to continue to support their truth, that they will not budge by that this Jesus is a fraud, that Jesus is not sent from God. In fact, Jesus is a threat to all the good people that want to follow after God faithfully. And so the Pharisees become an example in this account of what it looks like to be spiritually blind. And so they interrogate the man, and then what they do is they interrogate this poor guy's parents. They bring his parents to try to see if they can get the story to break or crack, and they threaten them. They say, essentially say, tell us what we want to hear or else we will excommunicate you from life in the synagogue. And as faithful Jewish believers, to be removed from the synagogue is to be removed from the center of community life. That was a significant consequence. And so they responded in fear going, he's of age, meaning he's an adult, ask him. And so it's after that that we pick up in verse 24 in which unsatisfied, they call the formerly blind man back to interrogate him a second time. Verse 24, a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Would you underline or highlight that? We know this man is a sinner. This is their truth. This is their paradigm. This is what makes sense. In fact, it is the only explanation. We know this man is a sinner. 
Verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Verse 26, they asked him, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Would you underline or highlight that? And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Some, <laughs> some very holy sarcasm there. And as you can imagine, it did not go over well. Verse 28, they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. So like I said last week, things just got spicy. And so what we often see when Jesus is being opposed by the religious leaders is that division, the root of the division is always over the identity of Jesus. Is Jesus who he claims to be? And what we see again in the Pharisees is this example of what it means to be spiritually blind, that they have chosen to refuse truth. Their heart has chosen refusal. So facts, truth, evidence will not budge them because they know their truth. They know their paradigm and get out of here with your facts because that is not going to change what I want, what I hope, what I wish, what I desire to be true. My paradigm is God. And again, Rocky Peak, something that I have to check in my heart, something that I often encourage us to do is that when we see this opposition of Jesus, our first response could be to become judgy, as I often say. But again, in a humble heart, I need to take a step back and let the Lord speak to me and say, that's me. That often is us. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, Rocky Peak, but can you reflect in your life in a time in which you chose to refuse truth? in which you chose to refuse the truth that God was trying to speak into your life, the truth that wisdom and counsel was trying to be speak into your life, because to accept it would have meant letting go of your paradigms, letting go of what you want to be true, of what you've desired to be true, maybe even of what you've based your life on up to this point. And when we put it in those terms, it becomes, a be it becomes more relatable, doesn't it? Let me illustrate, give an example of this. So, any NFL fans? Any football fans in here? As season starts, so many of you know I'm a diehard San Francisco 49ers fan. They are, hey, <laughs> hey. And so last night, preseason began and my precious 49ers took the field for the first time. And if you ask me, Dre, how do you think the 49ers are gonna do this season? I'm gonna tell you straight in the eye the same thing I've been saying for the majority of my life. They are going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I am dead serious. They are going to win the Super Bowl because that's what being a committed sports fan is all about. Now, many times when I say that to people, they just walk away. But there's other people 
that want to engage in the conversation, and sometimes they do so by bringing up facts. <laughs> so they may ask a question and go, Bedray, the 49ers historically have been an aerial, a passing team, and they have struggled for many quarterbacks as they're going into the season. Jimmy G is not firing on all cylinders. We've got this young kid, Trey Lance, who has potential, but he's not, but he's not been proven yet. What do you think about that? Uh-huh. Or Dre, last season, the majority of your team was injured. In fact, your team spent more money on the injured reserve than most of the other teams combined. Do you think they've had enough time to physically come back from that? Uh-huh. Hey, Dre, in your adult lifetime over the last 10 years, you've watched the 49ers lose two Super Bowls. You know that we can don't have to go back that far to where they had a 4 and 12 season. How do you respond to that? And I respond this way, get out of here with your facts. <laughs> they don't matter because I have established what my truth is. Now I'm sure all of us can relate to that on a superficial level. And hear me clearly, cheering for a sports team should be superficial at best. But if we start moving deeper and deeper to the stuff that really matters, to our hopes, to our desires, to our heart, to our fears, to our confusion, to our anger, to our comfortabilities, to whatever it may be, do we not start finding ourselves in a moment of humility and honest examination to respond similarly to the religious leaders. How do you respond when God wants to work outside of what you think is right? Outside of what makes sense? Outside of your paradigm? Often, as we spoke about last week, we fight to put him back in our paradigm to force him to make sense. And yet when we go to scripture cover to cover, what we are seeing is a God who is far bigger than we are, who is far greater than we are, who is always looking to act in the greater good, who is calling us to listen and follow. And one of the struggles of that is many times we will listen and what God is asking us to follow makes no sense. It doesn't compute with my paradigm. It's not what I want to do. It seems longer, it seems harder. God, I don't know about this. This doesn't sit well. And yet what we see through Jesus' truth, what we've seen throughout John's gospel up to this point, is that God does not call us into the confusing, into the bigger. God does not call us out of our paradigm for the sake of making you uncomfortable, for the sake of poking you with a stick, for the sake of seeing how much it'll take for you to drop. But God calls us to take a step out, a step of joyful obedience, to listen and follow, even if we don't see where we're going, because it's always to lead us to a greater life. He doesn't say, follow me, because it makes sense. He says, follow me because you can see me and I am good and I'm hope and I'm strength and I am redeemer. Don't trust the outcome, trust me. And so we see this in examples in scripture when we find ourselves in, in, in our lives just like the people that went before us in the Bible, 
in seasons of suffering, in seasons of conflict, in seasons of hurt, in seasons of anger and confusion and fear. And we go to God and we say, God, remove this, end this, deal with this. And hear me, Rocky Peak, pray that prayer. Pray that prayer. But there are times in which God's response is to take us back to scripture and say, but I will bring a deeper joy in the midst of your suffering if you trust me. There are times in which we go to God in which we are being attacked by people in our lives, by groups or organizations. When we are being attacked in our character, are we being attacked as Christ followers? And we go to God and we say, God, we need you to deal with our enemies. We need you to deal with how they are attacking. We need you to deal with the hurt they're bringing. And again, pray that prayer. But there are times in which God will lead us back to scripture and say, but for you to experience a greater truth and a greater life, I'm gonna ask you to pray blessings for those that are persecuting you. To pray that my love would transform their life. To forgive as you have been forgiven. And again, we can sit there and go, God, that, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't wrap around my paradigm. But again, God is saying it will lead you to greater life. There are times in my life in which we look at our family members, our friends, we look at our coworkers, we look at the people in our community that we love who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet know his truth, who don't, haven't yet experienced his love, and we go and we pray, Jesus, for you to be revealed, for you to transform them, and again, pray that prayer, Rocky Peak, and many times as we pray that prayer, we say, and God, would you send someone to tell them about you, to tell them about your truth, to tell them about how good you are, and God says, I already did, you. And many times for us, that doesn't sit well. It doesn't make sense because we sit there and go, no, I, I don't know everything. I don't have the answer. I don't have the title. I don't have the degree. God, my life is kind of a mess. And again, God is saying, but if you listen and follow when it doesn't make sense, it will lead you to experience a greater life. Pride is to refuse life. There in your note sheet, from John chapter three, the words of Jesus say that this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil meaning that people that we, we saw Jesus and we chose darkness anyways. And again, an honest question is, why would anyone choose darkness when they could choose the light? And the truth of my heart is we choose darkness because darkness makes sense. Darkness is small. Darkness I can wrap my mind around. And Jesus is bigger than what I can wrap my mind around. Jesus is bigger than my road, than my truths, than my paradigm. And so again, Jesus will often move in deeply personal ways and often in deeply unexpected ways outside of our paradigms for the sake of toppling our paradigms, but all for the purpose of leading us to experience life and to the full. Pride is the root of spiritual darkness. And we need to be vigilant against it. But like I talked about last week, I am not qualified 
to determine if my heart is in the right place. And you know why? Because often I, often we, we don't see ourselves as the prideful ones. We see ourselves as the right ones. We see our methods, we see our thinking, we see our actions as the right ones. We become blind to the truth. And so like I implored us last week that Christ followers, what we need to do is we need to rise up just as Jesus modeled this wonderful intentionality, we need to be a people, uh, sons and daughters of Jesus, who are intentional to be regularly before the Lord and asking this beautifully humbling and powerful question, Jesus, what do you want to say about my heart? Jesus, what do you want to say about my heart? Jesus, what don't I see? frankly, what don't I want to see? And again, remember the big picture that the light of the world in Jesus has come to illuminate sin so that he can remove it. And instead, in its place, he can illuminate a greater life, a life to the full. And so that leads us to the third episode, the final episode of this trilogy titled Transformation and Declaration. Oh, no, excuse me, let me go back. <laughs> Thank you. Your second fill-in, right? Thank you. It's a long chapter. Last service, I think I straight forgot the third fill-in. Pride results in spiritual blindness. Again, this refusal to see God's truth is an embracing of spiritual blindness. But Jesus is the solution to it. This man, as we are continuing his progression, is beginning to see not just with his eyes, but he's beginning to see with his heart. And we see that as we jump back to verse 30. This man answered, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Would you underline or highlight that? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man who has had his sight for what? A number of hours at best is spitting truth. John throughout this whole point in this gospel has highlighted Jesus' declaration that he does nothing separate from the Father, that he has a very unique and un unparalleled partnership in unity with God the Father. And here is this man who began by saying this man called Jesus. He is now seeing that Jesus is something more. And clearly he shares a partnership with God the Father that there is no way Jesus could have done this without the power of God behind him. And the Pharisees to this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lectured us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. He's expelled what his parents feared. And so with that again now, as we go into episode three, 
the transformation of the declaration in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. Remember, all of episode two happened without Jesus present. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Would you underline or highlight that? We've seen Jesus use that title before in John's gospel. It's a way of saying that the Son of Man is God's revelation of truth in life to man, to humanity, to people. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Would you underline or highlight the declaration? Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And so again, we've seen the progression of blindness in the Pharisees, but we've now also seen this growing progression of sight of what it means to be seen. And now we see this beautiful truth that's there on your fill-in that restored sight is really a restored heart. Restored sight is a restored heart. This man can see with more than his eyes. He can see his, with his heart. He can see with his soul. Because again, it's there in your note sheet. He went from this man to earlier in the interrogation thinking, well, there has to be something more. He needs to be a prophet. To now he is declaring, you are Lord. Jesus is inviting us, just as he invited him, to believe, to see the truth of who he is. And that's a beautiful picture of what worship really is. Worship is bigger than the wonderful songs that we sing when we gather each week. Worship is a declaration that I can now see Jesus. I see him as king. I see his authority. I see his forgiveness. I see his strength. I see his power. I see his hope. I see his redemption. I see his presence in my life and both the good and the bad. To worship Jesus is to declare that I can now see life and I can experience life. Restored sight is a restored heart. And as we close out this passage, verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see, in other words, those who think they see, will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and they asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, now that you won't budge from your paradigms, from your truth, from what you believe is right, your guilt remains. Blindness is a critical condition. But Jesus is the solution to that condition. Jesus opens our eyes to life, not just once, but regularly, and he leads us to experience life to the full, the restored sight. And so as we leave our passage today, I want to ask you a key question, and it's not in your note sheet, 
But I want you to just take this into your heart. As we reflect on John chapter nine, what is Jesus inviting you to see? What is Jesus inviting you to see? And we can use these three episodes to kind of help us break that down a little bit. Maybe for some of you, you would say that you're living in episode one in which Jesus is inviting you to see who he is for the very first time. That he's inviting you to see for the first time that he is king, that he is creator, that he has the authority. Maybe for the first time, Jesus is inviting you to see that he redeems our sin, that he forgives us, that he is the resurrection and that he gives us a brand new life. Or maybe some of you would say, I'm living episode one and yes, I saw that once and I've forgotten or I fell into darkness as a whole or I fell into darkness in a specific area in my life and Jesus is, asked, is inviting you to experience through a beautiful repentance and, convic- and conviction who he is. And he wants to give you life. Maybe some of you would say, well, I feel like I'm living in episode two in which Jesus is inviting me to see the pride that's been hidden in my heart or the pride that I've known is there and I haven't wanted to acknowledge. But not only that, if you're in episode two, Jesus is inviting you to see his authority to remove that pride from your hearts, to remove that darkness, to remove that bondage, to break the shackles and to fill it with his truth, to fill it with his life. And so what Jesus is inviting you to do as well as in episode one through a beautiful act of repentance is to experience a renewed, a deeper, a fresh freedom that is found in his truth. Or for some of you, maybe you would say, I'm living through episode three. And so what did we see Jesus intentionally do twice in the life of this man? First, when Jesus stepped into his ailment, and secondly, when Jesus stepped into his life after he had been thrown out of the synagogue, is Jesus entered into his mess, willingly to be present. And maybe you're saying that right now, my life is a mess. My circumstances are a mess. There is hardship, there is trial, there is exhaustion, there is anger, there is fear, there is confusion. And Jesus is inviting you to see his presence, his life, his strength in your mess. Is Jesus inviting you to experience a worship that can only happen when we are completely devoid of strength, when we are completely devoid of ideas, when we are completely devoid of strategy, when we have nowhere else to go and we experience what it's like to be held up by the King of Kings. Wherever you're at, What is Jesus inviting you to see? What is Jesus inviting you to experience by opening your eyes? So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come out and as we close this time, I wanna invite you, not just for this to be a time of singing, but this to be a time of reflection, of asking that question. 
Even as the song, appropriately, we get to sing the lyric that you open the eyes of the blind. So again, Rocky Peak, let this be the beginning of a beautifully rich dialogue with the Lord that continues after we leave this place and we ask that question, Jesus, what are you inviting me to see? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are inviting us to see through your power, through your spirit in us, through your grace, through your truth. And here we are as your local church. Here we are as individual sons and daughters. Here we are saying, Jesus, we will answer your invitation. And that might bring some fear and trepidation, but it also brings joy in experiencing truth, in experiencing power. And so Jesus, as we reflect on the episodes we find ourselves in, so to speak, as we reflect on what you're doing, as we reflect on these areas in which we're living in blindness, we know that you open our eyes for the sake of giving us more and greater life. And let us declare in this song, let us declare as we continue to leave this place and follow after you, that because of your work, Jesus, we can see you. We can see your life. And that's what we want to keep our eyes fixed on. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen.